coming up on Venture Voice. Don't quit when you're down. Quit when you're up, if you ever want to quit. But do not quit in your dark day. In my darkest days is where I found my greatest wisdom. It was my wall. And those are given to you as a gift. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation I had with Rob Lacasio, the CEO and founder of Live Person. This is a really interesting story to me. So often you hear someone starts a company, they sell it a few years later. Rob started Live Person in 1995 and has been the CEO all this time throughout. And they really struggled going public. It was right around the dot-com crash and had a lot of pivots to get here, but they're now worth over $3.5 billion in market cap. So really fascinating to see him pull through the other side. I find it very inspiring as someone who's run my own business for over 10 years now, building Muckrack, the SaaS company I founded up over the past uh, decade plus. So it's fun hearing from an entrepreneur who's gone and run their company for even longer. Rob really opens up in this interview talking about his struggles, going through therapy, just the mental anguish of going through a crash, making it through 9-11, and still being here today and running his company and continuing to grow. I hope you find this interview as inspiring as I did. Rob, welcome to Venture Voice. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Let's start from the top. I, uh, I understand you started your first business at age uh, 16, R&R Auto Care. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, actually, I may have been a little younger, but yeah, I, I was uh, started out with a friend, Robert, hence the R&R, and we detailed and washed like expensive cars for people who were in the other neighborhoods. So it was, uh, it got us in a, uh, the ability to get our hands on uh, expensive Mercedes and Porsches and and then we got to wash them. So that was my first, uh, my first business as an entrepreneur. Nice. And then I understand you launched uh, your first tech business, I believe, at, uh, at age 23. But kind of walk me through like, you know, your, your childhood and then like what, uh, what led to you starting your first business? I grew up in a, a family of entrepreneurs. My grandparents were entrepreneurs. My grandfathers came over from Italy and had businesses when they came here to survive. They... Uh, started businesses. And, and I guess we just had always this entrepreneurial spirit in our family. My dad had a bunch of small businesses, my cousin. So I guess I just grew up around it as a kid and didn't know any better. You know, All through my life, I guess I've always had that reference point in my head. I, I went to college. I studied business English literature. I went to Loyola University. And then when I got out of college, I worked for about six months. It was my first real job. It was in 1990. I was trading chemicals, like I was a, a trader. There was a company in Japan that made these chemicals for the paints on cars, and we would trade them and bring them into the U.S. And I was involved with sending faxes and doing everything. And, and I always thought this would be a cool job until I got fired uh, about six months into the job, and they were laying off a bunch of people because it was part of a very big company out of Australia, and they were having issues. You know, I got fired. Actually, got fired by fax. So that was my first experience of having you know, this type of a job out of college. Wow. Was it just the facts? Did it just say you're fired in like big letters or uh, how, how does that go when you get fired by facts? It just said, fire this person. 
So yeah, so I was fired from fax and I kind of ran the fax machine, you know, as the, the youngest person. They say, okay, go get faxes. And and I picked up a fax and it said, you know, we're going to be restructuring the company and these are the people you have to terminate. It was like a form letter and it had my name on it. And I remember my boss was the guy in a small office, like 15 people. So my boss was the head of the office. And I knew I was going to hand him this fax. It basically was my end of my my career at the company. So I gave it to him and he's like, okay. And it was such an odd situation, as you can imagine. Obviously, I know what's going on. And then he sat with me, said, "He'll, I'll check it out. And then said, yeah, we got we to gotta let you go. They were really nice. And they took me to lunch because I was young, out of college. And I did a really good job for them. And I was working hard. And they were sorry that they had to fire me. But uh, they took me to lunch. And I remember at the end of the lunch, they said, have you learned any lessons working here? Like, what are some of the things you've learned? And it's such an odd question. But I just went right too. And I just said, I'll never fucking work for a company again in my entire life. I just cursed. I said, this is the most fucking ridiculous thing. I got fired by fax. Nobody knows why. Like, I don't even know how you work here. And I literally got up, said, thank you. And I walked out the door. I got in my car and I just broke down crying, you know, because it was, you're young and and you're scared and you, you failed. And so I, you know, basically from there, said, okay, I don't want to work for anybody and I'm going to start my own company. And I started to then think about, you know, what do I really want to start? Where the randomness of it or the lack of rationale of it hit you harder than just getting fired for cause. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, I would say most entrepreneurs, there's two parts of being an entrepreneur. One is you want to solve a problem that you think exists in the world, like some problem you faced and you think, I just want to fix that. And the second part is usually you're like, I want to have a lot of control over my future. And when you think about the entrepreneurial personality, it's a pretty high control personality, which can lead to good behavior and, and not good behavior, you know, because that's the entrepreneurial, I think, the spirit. So, you know, I decided I'm going to go and start a company. I, I made a list of three different companies that I'd want to start and jot them down. And, and one said advertising agency, and there were two others. So the ad agency thing I thought was kind of cool at the time. It was creative and uh, there were some shows on TV about advertising and looked cool. And then I kind of made my way into technology. I found my way to interactive technology back in 91 now. It was about 1991. And that kind of started me on my first company, which was called Icon. Now paint the picture. That was Icon. That was in 90. 91? One, yeah, around 91. End of 90, beginning of 91, yeah. Yeah, so early 90s, uh, you know, for those too young to remember, that's when I just started building websites myself. For those too young to remember, like, what, what was the internet like back then? So the internet was a joke from my perspective. Um, I gravitated towards, if you were in that place, there were some people who were in the internet, but the internet was, most of it was an academic you know, tool to load up docs and there were links to docs. And that's what we used to use in college. There was another thing happening at that time, which was interactive TV. And there were these trials going down with Time Warner in Orlando to build an interactive television set. And I'd sort of read about this somehow. And then I just so happened to be in the World Financial Center in New York City. And I saw these kiosks, like a touchscreen kiosk. And there was like colors and you could touch them. It was a computer, obviously. It didn't have any video. I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. And then I somehow my brain put it all together and said, 
why don't you go after the college campus market? Because I realized I just came out of college and college advertising was really bad. It was mostly the college newspaper and posters everywhere. And I thought, what if we put these kiosks into college campuses and I could build an interactive TV network in college campuses? So this is kind of where I got excited. That was the original thing that I, I, I set out to build a company around. I had no experience in technology. I didn't know how to program. I knew nothing you know, about technology at that point. How did that play out? How did you ramp it up? And, uh, you know, was it just you? Did you bring new people onto the team? You know, once you get your head wrapped around a vision, I started to like, I was very curious. And the curiosity, I found some technology. I found full motion video technology in 1992, which, or 91 now, now it's like mid 91. And it was really cool, like to see a video playing off of a computer and the hard drive was flicking. There were, you know, lights at the time to show the hard. I was like, wow, it's digital video. And you can send this over a modem. At that point, we had modems. And it just gave me a sense that this was some future. And I just started, you know, once again, you start attracting people. I found a graphic designer. I found a programmer who was actually in the school that I'd graduated from. I put $50,000 on my credit card. So I, I had these like five credit cards at a $10,000 limit each. And I started to take out cash withdrawals and paid for equipment and started to try to build this technology. And so there were three of us going at it at the time. How was the stress level? I mean, $50,000 on credit cards, uh, it's a lot of interest or even just a lot of money to pay back without the interest. There wasn't really venture the concept of venture capital and there was no AWS or anything. It's just like you hard-coded and hard-built businesses. And it was going quite well. We got the first kiosk up at Towson State University. And then we got George Mason University up, then University of Maryland up. And then I got NYU up. And this is around, I'm fast forward, it's around 90, 1995. So 91 to like 92, I'm just, we're playing with the technology. I think we launched the first kiosk around the end of 92, 93, 94, into 95. We're setting up four or five schools. And then in 95, we had advertisements on these kiosks. So it was really cool. You could touch and watch a video and interact like you would do on the web, strangely enough, but it was in this kiosk. And I got one of my advertisers was Northwest Airlines. It was an airline back then. And they called me up and said, can you build a website? And I remember this day, I was, we were launching NYU. So New York University was like the jewel of universities. We were in the, in the student union building off of Washington Square Park. And even Capitol Records, who was an advertiser, sent up an, an artist called D'Angelo, and D'Angelo was playing a set. He was really popular back then, like an acoustic set. It was like thousands of people around this kiosk. It was like m my crowning achievement day. And I get a call from Northwest Airlines, and they say, can you build a website? And I said, sure. I hung up the phone, and I remember thinking, we're done. Because I'd seen the web. I didn't really believe in it. I always thought digital video and interactive TV would beat it out. But at this point, I kind of realized this was the future, like getting access in a student's room versus walking down to a, a student union building, like you know, to a kiosk. So I just started at that point focusing on, you know, the next journey of my entrepreneurial life. And it was hard. You know, at that point, I wasn't paying the credit cards. Credit card companies were chasing me around. I didn't get put into bankruptcy because I didn't have any assets. There's nothing to take from me. So they wrote off all my credit cards. My credit rating went to like zero. And so I kind of lost everything. And then I started how to plot my new course. And I moved to New York City. And that's when I started what is today Live Person.
Uh, so did you actually have to shut down uh, that company, Icon? So I left the kiosks running for as long as they could. I didn't service them. I didn't do anything. I just sort of had these. And within about six months, they were gone. I remember I even got a notice from one of those universities. I think it was University around like, take your kiosk out of here. I mean, they wanted it out. It became like a liability. It's like this giant thing that could have fell on somebody. And like, they just wanted it out. So yeah, I moved. And then I moved to New York. I had about about 15,000, 10,000 in the bank account. I got a small office of a guy who made t-shirts down in Tribeca. And he gave me this tiny little office, probably like 400 square feet. And um, he was going to use it as a nursery for his wife when she got pregnant. She was pregnant, have a kid. But he, was, he let me sublease it for a couple hundred dollars a month. I was in Baltimore where I started the first company, but I, I brought up a couch, a computer, a desk, a chair and my clothes. And that's what I had to my life at the time. And then I moved in to this uh, 400 square foot space. And and that's where I ended up living because I couldn't afford an apartment. I opted for an office over an apartment. So I decided to live there. It didn't have a shower or anything. It was just a bathroom in the hallway. I had to get a health club membership to shower. So that's how I got started. You know, what was going through your head emotionally, like, you know, on one hand, you're trying to get this new start in New York, but on the other hand, uh, like like many entrepreneurs, your your last business had this failure. There's nothing left of it. It you know, you, it ate up your money and your credit rating. Like, how did you kind of manage your psychology between having the the gumption to try something new and kind of processing the loss and uh, you know whatever feelings were dredged up by the um, the failure of the first business? I felt fabulous. I was like, this is awesome. I've lost everything. I've got a whole future ahead of me. I'm now not burdened with those credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> not burdened with access to credit. <laughs> I was depressed. I was, I was down in the dumps. I was sleeping on a couch. I remember it was November of 95. It was like cold out. I remember it was like a day like today here. It was snowing at night. I was alone. I felt like I was a total loser. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? And I really was in a bad place mentally because I'd lost a company and it was just cycling in my head all day. You know, like I'm like, I'm a loser and why did I do it? It's just, you know, and it happens and, and the pressure and I, the credit cards. And interesting enough, a, a friend of mine recommended I go to this psychologist, Dr. Frank Morio. And he said, you know, you're kind of like not in a good place. You know, he said, it'd be great. I think if you talk to somebody. I met this this psychologist and ended up going through a journey with him for about two years to get back in shape, to uh, prepare myself to be the entrepreneur I wanted to be. What were you doing during those two years? You're going to the psychologist. Like, how are you? How are you making a living? How you know? How are you occupying your day? I was occupying my day by making websites. So I started to make websites for small businesses. I'd go see Frank in New York City. It was really cool at the time. There was a very small group of us of entrepreneurs who are in the internet. It was like, and we all knew each other. It was, it, we felt like we were artists. You know, it wasn't about technology. It was about the art of the internet. And, and so interesting enough, there was a group called the World Wide Web Artists Consortium, WAC. And it was uh, the, the guys that founded uh, Jeff Dacus from agency.com and Kyle Shu or Shen from uh, Organic Media. They started this org and all of us would get together in the Sony building. Sony gave us their conference area. And like once a week, we'd all meet and we'd talk about the internet. And there was like, I don't know, there's 20 of us. And we were all working on things and struggling with using a database on the internet. And 
all of that. And it was a wonderful experience to be with those people. And we were kind of like the founding group, you know, and there was stuff happening on the West Coast at the time too, but there was a lot in New York. New York was really, because the internet was looked as like a media tool at the time. It was all about content and Yahoo. And that's where New York is really about that content and media. It was just like a wonderful time at the beginning. And then in between, like I said, I'd go see Frank once a week and he would, you know, work with me on getting me, you know, mentally in shape and kind of reworking my thinking so that I wouldn't end up on the couch again. What was your thinking like before you went to go see Frank? And then what, how was it rewired? It was just raw, you know, like you're young and you don't really understand things. And what Frank made me realize was that the way I was viewing the world was not serving me. And the tools that I was, that I'd, I'd given as a kid or what I developed over my lifetime at that point was not serving me to really make the right decisions about hiring the right people, acting the right way. And, and you know, and it also took a toll on me physically, the anxiety of it, of being an entrepreneur. I would have panic attacks, you know, it was wearing on me. And so he just taught me a set of skills. And it took time, you know, it wasn't easy. I mean, he, he told me if you're ever, the one thing I would say, if you ever emotionally feel something, anger, you know, disappointment, whatever that, a hard emotion, don't act on it, call me. So I remember there were times when I was in a, like in a meeting with a customer and I thought they did something wrong to me or, you know, I was in my head about how they were treating me or respecting me and I was inside pissed off and I would say, you know, could I go to the bathroom? I take a quick bathroom break and call Frank and say, I'm in this meeting. This is what's happening. He would say, go back in and do it differently. Do this and try this. And I started to see results. I started to see I was start to win. I was starting to get customers. I was starting to grow the company. I was starting to uh, attract good people. But, you know, at the beginning, it was rough. Even when I started, like, I didn't attract the right people. It was like I had to even clean up when I started this company. I was just not mentally prepared to do what I, what I needed to do. How would you summarize kind of the new world view that you took out of that whole experience as compared to what it was before? The greatest thing I learned was that there's an uncertainty I have about running the company. And maybe that kept, that's kept me in this business for the, the many years. And, and I've you know, done quite well with this business because I always have a sense of uncertainty around how am I viewing the world? I don't take for granted that the way I'm viewing things is the right way. I have doubts. I have doubt, enough doubts. It doesn't paralyze me. Like It's not like I don't make decisions or anything, but I'm talking about I am looking and observing myself so that maybe I'm not doing the right thing. You know, Maybe I'm, I need to learn here. So it keeps you in a constant state of learning. It keeps you in a constant state of keeping like your ego in check. It keeps you in a constant state of knowing that at any moment, your calibration can be off. And my, and my calibration will continue because we're growing. And we, I have 13, you know, we have 1,300 employees at the company right now. But yet I had just myself back 20-something years ago. So next week, this company will be bigger than last week. It keeps growing. And so the skills I need, you know, I've got to keep developing. I can't just be frozen in time. And that's what Frank, you know, that's what I learned from the, the stuff that I worked with with Frank. Dr. Morio. Wow. So the superpower, well, part of it was having him on speed dial. That, that's a pretty amazing, uh, amazing level. I never paid him because I didn't have any money and he didn't want to take any money. I gave him some stock when I went public. He basically, after two years working with him, he said, you're done. 
you're fine. Just go out. You don't need me anymore. He set me on my way. And then I called him about, uh, about two years later, we went public. And I called him because he knew this was a dream of mine. That's what I told him the first time I met him, was that, you know, I want to run a public company. I think it's like the highest honor of business. When I was able to go public, I called him up. He said, no, I've been following you and I've been seeing you in the news and stuff. And uh, I knew you, he said, I knew you would make it. You know, we, we did a lot of hard work for two years. I know you don't take it for granted. It wasn't easy, but he goes, I know what you had to do to just get yourself off that couch. I want to come back to all this, but just to, to finish out the story, you know, getting off the couch, how'd the first inkling for this business uh, come to be? Quickly, you know, I'm building websites and pretty quickly I'm realizing that where's the people? Like these are stores, they're digital stores, but there's no people. Like back then you just arrive as like a links and some pictures and websites weren't that pretty at the time, but I'm like, where's the people? And that gave me the idea about chatting online. So I invented in 1997, I came up with the idea of like chatting online and it didn't exist, believe it or not. And I invented this technology, filed a patent on it. I remember I, I had at that time, there was about five, five or six people in the company. And there was this woman, Sally Barton, and she was a designer, our, our UX and graphic designer. And we spent, I don't know, a month developing a chat window. And today, like you see millions of them around, but that was, that was like, I remember her and I did all this work, the size should it be vertical or horizontal. How does it fit with different resolutions of screens? But I saw that this could be powerful and, and we built it. We went live with a few of our customers that we built websites for, and they were really liking it. And I thought this could be cool. And then we hit our next big wall, you know, like just when everything seems like it's going well, <laughs> we get hit with another wall. What was the wall? Our largest customer called me up. Now, this is about, this is 98, somewhere in late 98, mid 98. And he said, uh, I can't pay anymore. I lost my funding. And I'm like, okay, he was 60, 65%, 70% of our revenues. Wow. He owed me already like three months back. I, like, I, he would always pay me. I wasn't like always chasing him for his money. So he's three months behind, plus he's not going to pay me anymore. So I asked him, like, what can you pay me? He's like, I, I don't have anything. He, I think he gave me a couple of grand. But it was on a Friday, I remember. And I went to my apartment and I started to think deeply about the chat business and building websites. And I knew, like, we couldn't do both. And I kind of felt like it was a sign. There's a hand of God in building businesses. And uh, whatever God you believe in, I just believe there's something above us or next to us, or holding us, but or pushing us. And in this case, it was pushing me to say, like, do you want to do the websites or do you want to do this chat thing? We only had like two or three customers on chat. So I kind of really thought about it. I said, you know what? I don't want to build websites anymore. And this customer that couldn't pay this was a website customer. Yeah, it was a website customer. I go, it's like painful. and I don't want to do this anymore. But I said, well, do this chat thing. But there's no business for us. We weren't even charging for it. So I went back to the team on Monday and I said, look. How big was the team? five of us, six of us. And I said, look, I've got some bad news. Gene Rohr, our, our customer, he can't pay us. They're like shocked. I had at least a weekend to deal with it. They knew what it meant. <laughs> and I said, look, we got this chat thing. Let's make a choice. Let's either do the chat thing or websites, but I don't think we can do both. Let's just focus on one and let's take a vote. So we took a vote and all of us agreed to do the chat. But most importantly is all of us took a vote to cut our salaries in half. Our lead Program, we only had two of them, was making, I think, 30,000. 
I was making 24,000 or something. So cutting the salaries in half was serious. I said, we don't have enough cash. We had three months of cash in the bank at that point. I said, I need to extend that at least to six. You build the tech, you get the tech ready. I'll write a business plan. You go out and say, I mean, we literally divided up and we focused. And then we started to get some more customers. And then I went out to raise money. In January of 99, we raised 3 million in funds and we had uh, 25,000 in the bank. Actually, someone gave me another 100 grand when we were raising money to hold me over. So we, we would have went under. I actually posted this on LinkedIn the other day, like the show, it's like, it's like 15,000. Then you see 25 come in, like I had somebody help us keep us alive. And then you see 3 million come in after the 25. So we were pretty much on the edge of running out of money when we got funded. How do you go about the process of uh, raising money? I know back, back then it was well, a very different time in the venture world. In New York, there were only a handful of venture capitalists, and I reached out to all of them. Interesting enough, it was funny. I was talking to one, the first one, Steve Rotman from Silicon Alley Venture Partners. Steve, and I forgot this story, I would emailed him the business plan, and I called him up. And he says, look, my computer's broken. If you can send somebody over here to fix my computer, I'll look at your business plan. And Lily, I sent, we only had two guys, I sent one over, he fixed the computer, Steve read the business plan, and he ended up kind of taking us under his wing and then introducing us to other venture capitalists. And then he funded and about four others funded us. And Steve told me, I, I literally talked to him that I was catching up with him after, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. And he said, the reason I did is because of anybody who was that committed to like fixing my computer, I figured would be committed to building this business. Like you were so, like you, you were going to fix my computer. You probably would have carried me home or cooked my dinner. You just wanted to get out there. And I, I just thought that's a mark of a good entrepreneur. So, so that's how we got started. It was started with this guy, Steve, but then Ed Sim was another venture capitalist. And then it kind of blossomed from there. We raised money from KKR and Highland Capital and NBCI and GE and Michael Dell and MSD Capital and Dell Computer. So we, we were off to the races after that. And tell me about the timeline. Like what, what year did you raise that first bit of venture money? And then how quickly did it go to the IPO from there? It was interesting. I mean, we, we raised in January of 99 and we went public in April of 2000. So we went from five, five of us or six of us to 180 people within 12 months, and we went public, you know, and we went public on 2 million in revenues, 20 million in losses, and we had a $300 million market cap. And we were April 7th of 2000, we were pretty much the last internet IPO of that flavor, like no revenue, and, and it was gone. We, when we were, did, did our roadshow, the internet was imploding. The ability to go public was done. I remember the Hamburg and Quist who took us public, had to cut the deal in half. Uh, so we raised 30 million instead of 60, which back then was a lot of money. They said, if you don't take this deal on Monday, because we were pricing on a Thursday and we were going to be public on Friday, you will not go public and nobody will go public. You're probably going to close the door on the dot com public markets. So I was like, okay, we'll take it. And move. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough day. I remember that day. My CFO and I were in this conference room at H&Q's headquarters in San Francisco. And, you know, H&Q took like Apple Public and Microsoft. I mean, they were, they were the best tech bank. They're no longer around, but they stuck us in a conference room. And I remember at noon, West Coast time, our banker came in, Mark Zanoli, and he said, uh, we probably are going to have a problem getting you public. 
And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, we just can't build the book. It's the internet's, you know, it's like, it's a shit show. Uh, okay. And that was it. Closed the door. Just want to give you a heads up. <laughs> so I called one of my board members, Bob Matchalot and Walter Forbes. And I, I said, I told them, you got, I told them what was happening. And they said, let me talk to Dan Case, who was the head of H&Q. He was a CEO. Whatever they talked to Dan about, Mark Zanoli came back like an hour or two later and said, uh, you know, we'll take it public. Or we're going to cut it in half. I remember I got my CFO. I ran out because we we're panicking. My CFO was really panicking. And I ran out and got Richard Branson's book, Losing My Virginity. And I got that and I handed it to my CFO and said, read the book because that book is just full of these types of scenarios. I said, I've read this book. Like, you got to read this book. Like, we can't sit here and look at each other for the next couple hours. Just read this book. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we were starting to panic. I, I was okay with it. And I felt it would happen. And ultimately, it did happen. And we went out the door. And now we were public at $8 a share in the middle of a falling market that would basically wipe out most internet companies of that vintage. So you went from being the one yourself on the couch to now, in essence, kind of counseling your CFO in this conference room. Yeah, it was, it was funny. And, and we were very close and we went through the roadshow. But, but I could tell, because I'll tell you why he was more panicked than I was, is that we were burning, we were burning two or three million a month. I think it was about a little over two million. And we had 10 million or 12 million in the bank. So we had six months of cash. So this was not enough room to do anything. So if we weren't going public, we were having a problem, you know, staying alive. So that's why I was like, uh, you know, I, I made that call and we were fortunate enough in Dan Case, he ended up passing away a couple of years later from a brain tumor. He was a great guy. I owe a lot to Dan. Wherever he is, he saved us. He called in favors. I know he called in favors to get us public. And then going public gave you thirty million in the bank, and I guess that's what at least, uh, yeah, a couple of years of runway. Yeah, it's about a, we had a year now, a year and a half of cash. So we went out April. I bought a competitor chat company in August out of Israel that had technology that was cheaper, less expensive than ours to maintain. And then in January of January February of 2001, we go to the board with a restructuring plan, my CFO and I, which I knew the end was coming because in about um, October of 2000, I get a call from our head of sales in the West Coast. I talked to them because they went from like doing, they would do 300 deals because the bubble was, and people don't realize, like they talk about today, like a bubble and is this a bubble? A bubble feeds off itself. So more than half our customers were dot-coms. So Everyone was getting funded and they all wanted chat software on their website. Everyone was getting funded. So we're building the bubble. And then once the funding stopped, everyone started to unwind their purchases. So we were losing you know, a large portion of our customers and we were or going to zero and signing new ones. So I remember we used to sign like two, 300 customers a quarter out in California. And we signed, it was in the fourth quarter, it's like zero. It went to zero, like from 300 to zero. And I remember I flew out and met the head of sales and he told me, he, and this is the head of sales, Dwight Foster, he said, um, you got to close us. You got to shut us down. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we're done. There's nothing here anymore. No customers. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, we're done. It's over. This whole, it's over. No one's getting funded. No one's buying software. And he goes, you're going to feel it next on the East Coast. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I flew back, talked to my CFO, and I took that to heart that we were at the end. 
And in January, February, we put a restructuring plan in with the board to terminate 80% of the workforce. So we were going to go from 180 down to 40 in one shot. So this is what's going on. Like I get funded, we go public. We don't really enjoy the public offering because we come off the road. The internet's starting to unwind. Then we hit January, February of 2001, and we're faced with what will become the first of what will become the largest crisis in our company's history. You said before your dream was to be a public company CEO. Were you able to see for it at, at all that like you got that dream and then immediately you're dealing with all this? Or like, how did that impact you? Yeah, I mean, I opened NASDAQ and it was a wonderful feeling. I had a pit in my stomach. You know, I, I didn't get to enjoy it. Once again, I was very proud. My parents were there. You know, everyone in the company, we were really happy and proud. But deep down, I knew it's kind of like you're at a party on the Titanic. Party's great, but you're on a ship that's going to sink. And it's just as much as you try to focus on the party, and we did. And my CFO and I, we didn't, we didn't, it's part of being the entrepreneur, like we didn't let anyone in on it. Like we both knew what would, what would eventually happen, but we just want people to be focused and feeling great and enjoying the day. So we didn't give them our thoughts or problems. We just enjoyed it with them and then went back to work. It was a blur. And then it, you know, it just continued to be a blur, you know, for the next pretty much two years after that. And tell me about that restructure. So you get the board to approve this plan. It sounds like the crux of the plan is that you need to lay off the majority of the company. What's the actual logistics from you get the board to approve a restructuring plan to, you know, actually deciding who gets let go and then, you know, letting that many people go and then waking up the next morning and operating the company? It's a terrible feeling. And up to that point, I never really fired anybody. I remember Bob Matchlot again, who was on a board. Bob actually was on the board of Disney for many years. He's not on there anymore, but he was, he was also vice chairman of Morgan Stanley. He was like a really seasoned business professional. Great guy. And I remember we gave the plan to the board. And on my board is Wick Grosbeck. He ended up buying the, uh, he owns the uh, Boston Celtics. And that was after, after, but he was at Highland Capital. So there was like, still the venture board was there. Bob was there through one of the venture, he was a venture partner in one of our funds. And Bob pulled me aside, pulls me aside and he says, look, you're really young. Uh, I think I was about 34 years old. And he said, you got a whole career ahead of you, but I don't know if you're going to make it here. Firing 140 out of 180 people, like even how to keep the company alive. I don't know how that works. And, but he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Just tell them the truth. Just be honest with them. Don't BS people because they'll remember you for that. So even if this doesn't work out, you're going to have to have a career and you want people saying, at least you told the truth. Because he said, look, the fact is the internet's not your problem. You didn't create the internet bubble. It's just that you were in it and you got public for it, but you didn't create it. And I did that. So when we, we were going to lay people off, we made a list of everyone's name and we put skill and will down in two columns. And if you didn't get the two check boxes, you were fired. We took everyone into a room, gave everyone an envelope. The envelope either said, come back for lunch. And if it didn't, it meant you were terminated. And then we exited people fairly quickly, had guards. And then I had to talk to people, like those original five people that we had when we got funded, a few of them I had to let go. So it was three of them. So I was responsible for talking to them and letting them go, which was hard. We had all been through a lot, but at that point, I didn't feel like they had the will 
to continue forward because we had a lot of money on paper when we went public. Our stock was worth a fair amount, even at $300 million market cap. But now at that point, the stock was, it was not below a dollar yet, but it was, uh, it was really low. It was trending down to zero. That's what we're dealing with. So yeah, so that, that's what happened the day. It was, it's a terrible day and teaches a lot of lessons and you get through it. I remember I was living with somebody at the time that I've been dating for a couple of years and it, the whole being an entrepreneur just took a toll on her. I remember when I told her what we were going to fire all these people and restructure the company and it would be hard times. She said, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. And that was it. She left and, and I don't blame her. Like I, I, it's not a, like it was such a dysfunctional world to be in the middle of firing, doing this You're every day you're grinding in, you're emotionally drained. It is what it is. I call it the walls. You're given all these walls to, to scale and you have a choice, either quit or scale them or go around them or bust them down one or the other. And so you're getting dumped the same week you have to lay off the majority of your company? Yeah, we made it. I mean, as in we did it. The next day we kept going forward. Uh, we Everyone worked very hard. The people were there. And then we get hit with 9-11. So then a couple months later from our offices, we watched the towers come down. That year, I don't think there's anything that you know could prepare you for it. And now we're dealing with people's lives. So we were now dealing with people thinking I could die. So and we watched the towers come down also because we were facing south. We were on 34th Street. So we watched the horror. And I just remember thinking, okay, we have to make sure people don't get hurt. That's our number one thing. But that taught me a lot of lessons, which I brought especially into the days of COVID, about how do you manage people and work with people through external macro events. I see. Again, through 9-11 and there was a dot-com crash and you said that the company got down to 40 people? Yeah. And I remember we had this giant office space in New York and there were all of us were jammed in one corner and in the far corner was a big whiteboard and someone put everyone's name on there, including mine. And when they left, they would cross their name off and we left it. We left it. I remember I like, I wish I took a picture. Like my name was up there too. It was kind of like, there's a sense that we weren't going to make it, but we had a sense we could make it. It was, it was bizarre. And I don't know why we, we all, we left it up. It was just sitting there and it was like a reminder that we'd have to work through all of this. And I remember it was like one of our employees got poached out of the company by another employee and she was in the towers and she died and they had her funeral. It was probably uh, October at the uh, Canadian embassy. And I went there and there were all these people from the company who we had let go. And it was just a, a thing. And I remember walking out of there to um, Central Park and just sat down and I just broke down. And I remember people in New York were so kind. People came up to me like, you know, are you okay? And everyone was very aware of people's emotions. And I, I just was there. I said, I'm okay. And I, I literally remember just broke down. I was like, what the fuck? Like, what are we living in? I fired all these people. I'm in the dot com. Now people are like, watch 9-11. And I'm like, I was living in a hotel because I couldn't get back to my apartment. I was just like, uh, it was bizarre. Very strange time, that 2001. And then we get a call from someone, <laughs> a real estate guy, and uh, come right after 9-11. So it was probably like October, right at the beginning of October, we get a call and our real estate guy said, we're going to get you out of all your office leases. And we had a lot of office leases and it was going to bury us. The office leases were the last part we couldn't get out of our leases. And he said, uh, Bank of New York lost their space, but no people at 9-11. They want connected office space. Can you get out? 
And in November, we got out of our office space and we became profitable. Wow. Just because somebody was willing to take over your lease. He took over our lease. Vernado, who's our landlord, wouldn't let us out. He had, he had half our cash was of a deposit at the time. And we had $4 million in cash, another $3 million in deposits. So we had $7 million in total cash. That was it. And even our auditors were going to file us for like a going concern that we probably, you know, that we could not make it. And then we got released, got our $3 million back, got out, and we turned, we flipped profitable in November of 2001. And I remember thinking, we're going to make it. I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, we're actually going to survive. We made it. And that was it. That was the end of that reign of startup. <laughs> and what was the logistics just of uh, being a public company? There's so many uh, reporting requirements and burden. I didn't even know you could run a public company as 40 people. Seven cents a share was our low at, at 9-11. I guess we closed like 11 or 12, but that was our low. So we had a $2 million market cap. We were below a dollar, but they suspended. They normally delist you. They just delist you off when you break a dollar for a certain period of time. They stopped the delistings because there were so many. I think Sun Microsystems was below a dollar. I mean, Oracle. I mean, there were a lot of us below a dollar. So they suspended that. And now they kept resetting the clock on not getting delisted. And the interesting enough is we beat the delisting by literally like two days. So if you fast forward, we stayed above a dollar for a week. And literally, we were getting delisted that week. We had our hearing with the NASDAQ, which is a BS thing. Once you have your hearing, they delist you. And we beat it. We were a dollar, we stayed at an average of a dollar one or two for the whole week. And that saved us. So that was the other side of that. But yeah, no one shows up on your quarterly calls. We didn't have any analysts. We had nothing. We were filing. Nobody was on the calls. We did the calls, but there was wasn't anyone asking us questions. Just us. Easier to call at least, right? <laughs> it's the weirdest. Yeah. I've been through a, a fair amount of weird things uh, building this company. So yeah, now we have calls with, you know, I've done 20 years of quarterly calls. So I have a good sense of how they work and stuff like that. So so tell me what it was like then building the company up. You said you got a profitable in 2001. And that was when I think a lot of people still have just written off the internet. What was that turn like? And how and was it kind of overnight that things ramped? Or was just a slow grind? Yeah, between 2001 and 2004, there was nothing going on. I mean, literally, we were making some sales, nothing really happening with the internet. We were staying afloat, so we didn't have a problem going out of business. And we kind of waited it out. And then in, I remember in 2004, things started to pick up. We started to see growth again. We started to see sales. And then we just kind of grew it from there. And then, uh, yeah, just took off. And the chat was really in demand. We were one of the few companies actually had the product because everyone else went under and so we were we really grew and, and we did very well under that so that got me to about seven years ago and then i looked at the chat business and said it's not going to fulfill my vision my vision was that conversations power commerce that these should be scaled and i could see chat wasn't really doing it at best only 10 percent of conversations would be chat and 90 were voice still traditional voice so i started to think about messaging and all the things we're doing with Facebook Messenger and iMessage and WhatsApp. And I thought, why can't we do these with businesses? And that's consumer behaviors doing that. So seven years ago, we started to build a whole new platform. We cut our earnings in half. Our stock got cut in half and we went for it. And then four years, it took three years to build the platform. And then we launched it four years ago. And then we've been off to the races. We went from, you know, a company during that time was worth a couple hundred million. And now we're close to five billion. So just over the last couple of years, we went from 
I think four years we went, we were about $600 million company. And then we're close to 5 billion in four years. The pivot was the way it worked. And, and we, we fully believe that AI and conversational AI and automation is really what the future will be of commerce. And we're very much a lead in it. And, uh, we made, took the risk and, you know, we're, we're getting some of the rewards. Tell me about taking that risk. You were saying you it cut the earnings in half. I guess that meant you were, in essence, reinvesting half your profits. Was it hard to convince the board? And then I'm sure your employees had stock options. Were they like, hey, why did you just have the value of our options? Yeah, there were two things that with the employees, we all had to kind of go through. One is we cut the earnings, but we also cut our bonuses. So like when we got down to the end of the year, we said, we're going to need more money to fund this platform. And, and so we took it out of our wallets, which was hard. You know, people rely on that. So basically, we did it. And you're right, the stock, you know, shareholders were pissed. And we had like almost 30% operating margins. We were growing at 25% at the time. So like, we look like we were on a run, because I thought we, we should do this pivot in strength. I said, I don't want to wait until we get somebody's going to come after us one day with this. Let's go ahead and disrupt ourselves. And so we went through this period that if you were looking at the business, you would think these guys are an old chat company, messing up, losing customers. We stopped growing. But I'll tell you, everyone who was working here, including myself, like we always knew like it was in our hands. We didn't need money. We weren't burning cash. We had money in the bank. We, it was in our hands. And, and there was nobody threatening us. We were threatening ourselves. So we made this disruption. We owned it. And even our competitors couldn't figure it out. They were, they, we were losing customers. Like they would win against us and they would take our big customers. One of them took our largest customer. I knew they were all like, God, we're just killing these guys after so many years of them beating us up because we've always been really good in, as leaders in product and execution around delivery. And then they were beating us. And so and then when we came out of the box with our new offering, we went back and beat them up. We took back all of our customers, basically, almost all of them we took back. They're bigger than ever. We explained what happened. Some of them were pretty resentful, but they got over it and they realized we built things for them. So it's really worth pivoting yourself than being pivoted on. How long did that process take from the moment you, 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 know, you cut the earnings and everyone gave up their bonus? To the moment where, like, you actually saw, you know, saw in the numbers, like, this is working. People are signing contracts. It was uh, four years, it's almost four years. So it was long. I mean, we got it took three years to get the platform out, and then what happened is we lost one of our largest telco customers, AT and T, and they weren't a good customer for us anymore. And it'd be very, it's really odd. Like, we parted ways with them. We let them go. I have a letter. Like we said, we we're done. They were $20 million business and it was very hard and because we weren't able to grow. We weren't like some customers want you to get there and other customers just they're threatening you because you're trying to put resources on something that's the future. And we wouldn't normally do it, but we just parted ways with them and we had to announce that to our shareholders, which also made them feel like what's going on here. And then we went out and got T-Mobile. I, I personally sent a message to uh, Mike Sievert and uh, John Legere and, and, and Mike who was the head of market at the time, now he's CEO, said, I love this idea about messaging. I love it's disruptive. Come on in. And they took us under their wing and we worked together to co-innovate. And we launched as the first scale messaging instance for customer care in the world. And I remember that day, it was like the day when, I, when we launched chat, I had this pride. 
and we were all so excited and consumers started to use it right away. And they were like, this is awesome. And it's asynchronous. I can message and go to the bathroom and come back and the consumers stay connected to the brand. And they're like, this is a great experience. So we knew we had something. And then T-Mobile helped us. They were a great reference. They would do things for us. They hosted an event for us. And the other company, AT&T, like they, they wanted to hurt us. And the, a competitor ended up picking them up and got nothing from them in the end. I, I mean, I'd like to get them again as a customer and prove that we can do good. But we lost something. But we gained something that allowed us to build this entire new business. And that's a trade. All these stories I keep telling are trades. What trade are you willing to make as an entrepreneur for your future? There has to be a trade. You will be given a trade. And you have to make the trade for the future. And if, you, if you're scared, you'll end up staying where you are, which was okay back then. I, I mean, it still would have done well, and we would have had a chat business and probably been a bit okay, but it wouldn't have been like we are today. What made you so confident that messaging would be the future and that online chat uh, wouldn't? Because it seems like online chat is something that, hey, every website should have a little online chat box and could be a sustainable thing for a while into the future. It's web-based. It's not like we had to change people's behaviors. They're showing up at a website to do something like sort of like an automat, then they're chatting. It doesn't scale because it's synchronous as in when you chat and you leave, you come back, it's like you're a new person again. It's like a voice call. It's like a modified telephone call and being put on hold. And where messaging was already behaviorally, we had changed as people, as consumers, we were messaging our friends and family, and this is how we were communicating. So I figured we just got aligned to consumer behavior. We didn't have any major data points. Like we didn't have some big study we did, or we brought someone in or to do a research project. We did socialize the concept with a couple of our customers. Some of them thought that's kind of cool, but I want chat. Obviously, we lost a lot of customers who just wanted chat and we stopped building the chat platform. So we lost the leadership on the feature side. So it wasn't obvious to the market at the time that this was the right thing to do, but it was obvious to T-Mobile and that's all that mattered. And do you attribute that just to finding the right customer? Or do you think it, you know, like what's the interest in T-Mobile and AT&T? Was it, was it just how they worked or was it how you approached them or how you explained it to them? Yeah, because T-Mobile was the uncarrier. You know, that's their thing. And it's supposed to be like, we're not supposed to be like carriers. And the carrier is about customer care. That's like being put on hold and it's not a great experience where they've always been so proud of their customer care and they do it very differently there. They're really a different type of company. So for them, it was like, it would align to their brand. But still, you know, I, I was lucky to reach out to Mike Sievert and any I, by Facebook Messenger, he messaged me back. I, we made a video just for them and did all the stuff and they were like- So it's Facebook Messenger, not even email. You just look up on Facebook. Yeah, yeah I thought this has got to be on brand. And then the funny thing is when I went and met with the gentleman who was going to run this, his name was Rob Gary. Rob met with me and he hated chat and he knew I was a chat guy. He knew the business, but he, he thought chat was not going to work. So I met with him. He had just joined T-Mobile himself. I said, hi, nice to meet you. Very cordial. And the first question for him was like, what do you think of chat? I said, it's dead. I said, I invented it. I'm going to kill it. I said, I believe in messaging. He goes, I'm glad you said that because I didn't even want to take a meeting with you because I thought you were the chat guy. And I said, I don't want to do chat. I got this vision. And I said, that's what I want. He said, that's what I, I believe it too. And him and I got on a journey. And interesting enough, when they asked us, we were then quoted him, how much would it cost to get the system? I came up with a number. I thought around 3 million is what it would be. And he said to me, which is very unique, he said, 
I want you to make sure we're paying you enough because I need you to be healthy. I see what you're doing with the business. You're pivoting it. When he met me, the stock was really down. He knew AT&T left. I'm like, it wasn't a good story. It looked really bad. So he said, I need you to be strong. Will this be, make you strong? I said, yeah, it's enough. We'll do okay with it. He said, okay. So we ended up signing this contract. But to be honest, he could have said zero. And some people would try to do that to you and be like, well, you don't even have this. You're going to need me as a sponsor. And that's where you find your customers can be the most amazing they are the most amazing people. You're here for them. We're, we're here for them. But they also can help you transform your business. And they also can hurt you. If you find those T-Mobiles, they're the ones that move you forward. But you may have to let some of them go that you know are holding you back. So we're very fortunate. And, uh, and it worked out. And I call it the rope-a-dope because the company that they had as a chat company picked up AT&T. We got them thrown out of T-Mobile. And I knew we were swapping a customer. They didn't know what was going on, but I knew we were about to swap. But the, I knew the exchange was not an equal exchange. I knew that this company could be an amazing partner to us and that they were getting something that I knew was just grinding us down, would grind them down. And then that's where it is. I don't think we'll ever pick up AT&T, unfortunately. You know, we've tried, but they still have sour grapes about the, the past. Other customers, we had Verizon, we lost them, we picked them back up. So we've picked up other customers that we've had and we went back and we said, look, this is what we did and we're doing great work with them. Rob, going through that pivot, you have those four years and if you're a private company, nobody would know, but you were public. So as you reference, your customers can see it. I'm sure your friends, your family check the stock price and they might not understand your whole strategic pivot. They just see the stocks going down. You know, How do you manage your psychology there? I mean, just being at the Thanksgiving table or you catch up with the family, I'm sure people bring it up. Like, what's that like just having having your valuation out there in public every moment? It's just, I guess I've been doing it so long, like at least my family and stuff, I, I never discuss it. And we never discuss that level of the company. And nobody brings it up because I don't bring it up. And I don't bring it up in the company. Like I, the stock is, it's its own world. It reflects something of the company. Sometimes it's behind, sometimes it's ahead. Sometimes I guess it's right on. But uh, a stock has no memory. You know, even when we were going through the pivot, we, we had some shareholders that were coming in and they were not so happy. And I would just say, you know, we, we just need to get through this. But I'm still one of the largest shareholders, if not the largest shareholder today. So I have a lot to lose to mess it up. And that's why founder-led businesses are usually the best performing businesses because we're always aligned to the future and to building, maximizing the shareholder wealth because we're maximizing ours. I'm not a hired gun trying to get through a quarter. I've got a vision I believe if we can get to, the company will be massive. And by doing that, it just, you get wealth created. But I never went to work for wealth creation. Like as an entrepreneur, you can't go to work. If you think about all the times I just didn't have money and I didn't have wealth, that's a lot of years. And then you have it. And so what? And then you can lose it. And so the most important thing is to, People have to see that you're excited about the company. Even through the dark days, they have to see like you you have hope and you believe. And if you get down or you start to focus on the stock price, then you lose your will. And the skill and will applies to me too. You know, I have to be able to maintain skill and, and grow skill and learn skill. And I have to be able to be in the game with my heart and soul. And that's the difference. 
you know, I never had to face anyone or a family member and they're like, oh my God. And, you know, obviously the stock's been doing really well. So some of my family member made a lot of money, you know, they believed in me from when we went public and there's, I've got an aunt who's been holding shares since the public offering, you know, and she's 90 something. I don't know what she's going to do with the money, but she doesn't spend or anything, but she's uh, so happy that she's got a lot of money. And so I'm like, you know, great. Yeah, Mary, it's awesome. She's believed in me. And she always tells me at Christmas, where, you know, I still have your stock and everything. Like, awesome. So they're proud. And I think for my family and for me, I, I look at my grandfathers and my dad. I've always looked at this as like a, a relay race. And I've been very fortunate to have these people in my life who handed me a baton of an entrepreneur that I got handed that I've run with. And I think it's more of the pride for our family that can I fulfill this dream? Because I've always thought of my family and, and they had these dreams. And sometimes they just couldn't make it to that level because they didn't have resources. They didn't go to school. They didn't they didn't have access to capital. They just came over on a boat from Italy. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate to carry that baton and I'll carry it to my my kids. And hopefully they'll take it from me and take it to another level. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be bigger, but it could be just that they go to work happy. And happy is about your purpose. I think about this a lot. I've had my business for about 10 years now, and it feels like a long time. But talking to you, it feels like I'm just getting started. But do you have any other tips for just kind of staying motivated and keeping at it after you've been doing it for a while, even when it's going well, just kind of how you keep fresh and how you keep showing up every day? I have so many tools that I, I have had to gather over the years to keep me in the game. But I think the most important thing is that how many days can you go to work and have bad days and doubt? And usually those are instructive. There's something telling you that this is not right. You got to listen to it. And so I, I tend to listen to that voice and don't ignore it too long. You tend to like first time kind of question it. But I learned somewhere about 10 years ago that the inner voice we call it our gut is not some abstract thought, that the gut is truly the voice that was given to you by whoever created us. And that voice is the voice that tells us how to move forward on our journey of life, whatever that voice is. So we tend to, with that voice, you know, we get a lot of outside influences telling us things. We have our own little socialization, that little gremlin in our brain that tells us something, uh, you know, doubt. But inside, if you can meditate on that voice, and believe in your in, in that voice, which is really about believing in yourself, you end up not having days where you feel a lot of uncertainty. So you have days where you feel like there's a, a lot of uncertainty around you, but inside you feel very certain that this is the path one way or another because you go to bed feeling okay. Not perfect, but okay. I'm not gonna lie, there are days I don't go to bed. You know, I just can't sleep because I'm anxious about something that I believe is important. It doesn't get easier as you get bigger. I mean, we have 1,300 people and I have an amazing leadership team, but it doesn't make my life like any easier. It makes it harder because I'm going after bigger dreams. So people think sometimes, when, oh, if I only can be bigger. You know, it's this idea that you, you've got to be in the business. I mean, somewhere you've got to operate the business. You've got to run. You've got to be an operator to the business. There's no CEO that's playing golf anymore. The business moves so quick all the time that if you're not in it, you're going to get lost. It's a, a disservice as a CEO not to be engaged in the business, no matter how big you are. But I think ultimately, and I, you know, I have a family now, and I didn't have a family. I got married five years ago, but and it was easier not to have a family when you're in those early days. And I'm very fortunate to have a family and a great wife and and three kids. I have a newborn who came two weeks ago, and 
you know, it's a different set of things, but they, they know, you know, my family who are so important to me also know that this is important to me. And I know for me, watching my dad and my grandfather's and my uncles and, and their businesses and aunts and cousins, and they all had businesses, I, I looked at how important it was to them. And it meant a lot to the family. You know, the best thing I can do for my children is go to work, work hard, be happy, show them that it's hard to do these things. And then when they grow up, they have lessons that I didn't have to tell them. And so you have a different set of things that you deal with when you have a family on these lessons versus, you know, entrepreneurs like who will listen to the show. So, you know, we'll see where I'll end up. You know, I, I have a long way to go and I uh, have a lot of big dreams and we'll see. Looking forward for live person. What are you excited about and what are you worried about? I'm excited about and worried about the same thing. So I, we are trying to build a conversational AI. It's called Bella. We just put it in the market six weeks ago as a bank but it'll be something greater. And we're trying to build an AI that we as people will trust, that we feel a sense of tenderness from it, love, and something that big tech could never build. The fear I have is that the big tech will continue to dominate and they need to be disrupted. And my hope is that our company, which is big enough, and we have resources and we have the will and we have skill and we have a big vision now that the world of conversational commerce where I'm talking to machines and a machine is helping me buy a car, a machine's helping me get a tutor for my kid, that we are the company that created that. And that should move us beyond websites and search and social media and things that, that we all know are, they're so old and they're so digital version one or two, and they need to be changed and disrupted. And um, I'm hoping our company will be the one, one of the ones to to do it. So on one side, I have such hope for what we're going after, and you know, on the other side, the stress and the uncertainty of can we do it? Because it's a it's a big dream. Yeah. So even now, uh, 25 years in, it's still that same kind of feeling of excitement and stress and will it work that has been there all along. Yeah, and and I have I'll, I guess in the end I'll have a very different story. You know, the thing I find is that people always try to give me their story about entrepreneurs. Like, why aren't you like this? And why aren't you like Mark Benioff? And why aren't you like, I mean, I've heard so much shit in my life, you know, and I'm like, at the end of my life, judge me. You understand? Everything in between, I don't know what's going to happen to Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else. You don't know. Or any other entrepreneur in the world. Jack Dorsey, you know, whoever. But at the end of our lives, then you can judge everybody. But up until that point, we're all in the game on the field playing. Somebody may be bigger than us today. I've seen so many bigger companies than us. When we went public, we were the smallest of our sector, and they're all gone. Sometimes you can just outlive everybody, and that's good enough for me. I may not have to beat them strategically, but I sure as shit can outlive them. So there's always more than one way to win. <laughs> hey, well, that sounds like a great note to uh, to close out on. But before we do, and any other words of wisdom you want to want to share with the listeners on, uh, you know, how, how to get through in entrepreneurship and how to be successful? Don't quit when you're down. Quit when you're up, if you ever want to quit. But do not quit in your dark day. In my darkest days is where I found my greatest wisdom. It was my wall. And those are given to you as a gift, as you'll see. It's like I, we lost our largest customer, but then we picked up another customer. We fired all these employees, but then we were able to survive. We went through 9-11 and that was a terrible thing, but then going through COVID, I was able to understand it much better. 
because I had this reference point of something in the past. So you'll find, you'll connect all these dots, as Steve Jobs said in one of his commencement speech, like you'll connect all the dots backwards. But the one thing, even when I ended up on that couch, I told myself, I'm not going to quit and go get a job. I'm going to start another company. I'm going to sleep on a couch because then at least I can say I didn't quit. This is, I can promise you, if you don't quit on your dark day, God will take care of you. And you have to believe in God. Whatever God you want to believe in, you have to believe that these miracles, which I'll call them, because there are things I've seen in the company. So we lost a big customer and then we pick up T-Mobile. Like it all made sense when I told you. It doesn't make sense when we were in the middle of it. It didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But it, it only makes sense now that I told the story. At the time, it looked pretty bad, but it was given to us. So you'll see along the way that if you fight through long enough, you will be given a hand to help you forward and over the wall. Rob, well, thanks so much for sharing your story and being so vulnerable with all the ups and downs and look forward to hearing uh, hearing where the story goes in the future. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to you back in 10 years from now. <laughs> Perfect. Well, every 10 years, I'll set a recurring calendar. Good. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Thanks. Same to you, Rob. All right. Okay, talk to you later. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rob as much as I did. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please let me know what you think of this show. Tweet me, find me on Instagram. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter or Instagram. And most importantly, spread the message about this show. Go to iTunes, leave a review, tell the world why you love it. Until next time, this is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice.